Good morning, everyone, from Washington, D.C., this morning and tomorrow. And good morning, Miles O'Brien, up there in uh, New York, in for Celeste Headley. Good morning, John. How's it going down there? Well, it's great, and we're going to be here for the next couple of days. And, you know, it's worth noting, it's more than worth noting, tomorrow will be one year since the Obama era began in America, in the world, and, and certainly here in this tough political town where politics is sausage and special interests and spinning wheels of power and backroom deals. It's all the stuff of Bob Woodward tell-alls and perhaps the less-than-all-telling political memoirs that come out of this city. This is just one year into this moment of change, the Obama era, A year ago, you may recall, the streets were packed with people conversing on the mall to see a moment, to hear a speech, to download on the bitter cold streets of the nation's capital that day some hope. Our founding fathers, our founding fathers faced with perils that we can scarcely imagine, drafted a charter to assure the rule of law and the rights of man, a charter expanded by the blood of generations. Those ideals still light the world, and we will not give them up for expedience's sake. Towering rhetoric a year ago, a parade of jumbotrons, you remember, lined up like huge playing cards at the center of power, and Obama the dealer. The rhetoric sounded so pretty, but the sausage-making of real politics since. Tasty, perhaps, but not pretty. A year later, no one is on the streets down here in Washington except to jog in the spring-like air. It hit 60 degrees yesterday afternoon, Miles. There were the usual tourists looking for the Space Museum. You know them. Mm -hmm. There was the White House, people looking for the White House, standing in line for the tour, the veterans' memorials, lobbyists and lawmakers hurrying to and from cars, and in an irony that speaks volumes about America and about democracy and this media era, suddenly the whole Obama era may come down to a question of potholes, negative ads, and how angry some folks in Massachusetts are this morning. Then, talking to the world, today the Obama message goes out to the few in Massachusetts voting in that special election. Vote number 60 in the Senate. Think long and hard about getting in that truck with Martha's opponent. It might not take you where you want to go. And where we don't want to go right now is backwards, to the same policies that got us into this mess in the first place when we just started to make progress cleaning it up. What a difference a year makes in the rhetoric, certainly in the headlines. The campaign never referred to Massachusetts as a battleground state, and there was no mention of Haiti as the focus of the international community one year ago. Exploring the contrast and changes in this short Obama year is why the takeaway is spending today and tomorrow down here in Washington, D.C. But let's go to Haiti, which is the focus of both the international community, the Obama administration, and uh, the uh, relief effort, uh, and uh, certainly a lot of institutions here in Washington are mobilized on the Haitian relief effort. But joining us once again, Jillian Dunn, Director of Emergency Response from the International Rescue Committee. She's in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And Carol Stern is CEO and President of the U.S. Fund for UNICEF. Uh, Carol Stern, let's begin with you. We talked about the exodus out of Port-au-Prince, which suggests that people are, are giving up on the city. Um, what can you tell us about the state of uh, coordination or the lack of it in the relief effort right now? I, mean, I think the relief effort is as coordinated as it could possibly be, given the sense of a double disaster that existed before and what's you know come afterwards. I know for UNICEF, we've had three planes get in. We yesterday doubled the number of spots we were distributing water. Um, you know, it, it may feel slow. It is slow. We wish it were quicker, but it is more than likely as fast as it possibly could have been. Are there circumstances unique to Haiti 
Uh, I'm reminded of the uh, earthquake in China where the Chinese infrastructure mobilized to, to an extraordinary degree, and the death toll there was about 100,000. Well, you know, you start with the fact that Haiti was the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. It's been ravaged by numerous storms in the past, you know, in, in recent years. Uh, it, before the storm, you had two doctors per 10,000 people in country, 50% of the population under the age of 18, only 54% with access to water before the storm, excuse me, before the earthquake hit. So you don't even have, you know, the basic infrastructure before the, the tragedy, and, and now you're faced with a place where the airport is shut down, the port gets shut down. You're behind that's the still a case a, a week a week after that earthquake struck. That is still the case. Carol Stern is CEO and president of the U.S. Fund for UNICEF. Jillian Dunn, director of emergency response for the International Rescue Committee. What do people say on the streets if if something could happen tomorrow? I want this, or uh, if they could just get this. What what are people saying in their frustration? Uh, the ones that are staying in Port-au-Prince. Well, their, their first concern, of course, is, is shelter. Um, we have thousands of people who are sleeping in the open air towards dusk. As you go towards the city, you see thousands and thousands of people starting to lay cinder blocks across the roads and then lay sheets out onto the roads so that they can sleep there during the night. So shelter is the primary concern. The other concerns are what you would expect as far as food and water and sanitation and getting adequate health care. And uh, Jillian Dunn, we're talking this morning about the sensitivity of language in describing what people are doing to try to save themselves. Um, do you think there's an important distinction between uh, reports of looting and a sense that people are merely trying to survive? I think that there are always people who will take advantage of a situation like this and, and will start to loot and steal from their neighbors. But really, for, for the most part, people are very calm. They are frustrated, but, um, but they are calm. They know that we are there to help. There's no antagonism against, um, against IRC and, and other organizations here. Um, but, of course, we do have concerns about um, the security of the population, especially those who are more vulnerable and those who are sleeping out on the streets. Um, but overall, I would say that the situation is about what you expect from any population. Indeed. Jillian Dunn is Director of Emergency Response for the International Rescue Committee. Thanks so much for joining us. And Carol Stern, would you agree with that assessment that security, based on the reports you're hearing, uh, is, is, is pretty good right now in Haiti before we go? Absolutely. That's what, what I'm hearing exactly the same from our people on the ground, that it is calmer than, than people have a sense it is. All right, to Carol Stern, CEO and president of the U.S. Fund for UNICEF, talking about the difficulties and also the uh, positives in uh, Haiti as people wait for relief, uh, decide on whether they're going to stay in Port-au-Prince or leave, and uh, the sensitivity of language in describing people trying to survive versus taking matters into their own hands and taking advantage of the situation, as Jillian Dunn said there. That's on The Takeaway. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.